0: Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on August 4th, 2016. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode...
1: So we, we, we like, approach the table, and he, he looks at us, and so I dive in, and I'm like, oh, hi, I'm Mary Roach, I'm doing this, blah, 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 blah. and, uh, you know, I wanted to talk to you, it's going to seem like a really silly topic, but I wanted to have a conversation about diarrhea, and he goes... It's not silly. You can sit down. As you
0: heard, that's Mary Roach. She's the best-selling author of such entertaining and informative works as Gulp, Adventures on the Elementary Canal, and Packing for Mars. Her latest book is Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War. She was visiting New York City recently, so I visited with her at her Soho hotel to talk grunt. I don't know if you know this, Mary. We know each other a long time. I don't know if you know, both my parents were in the Marine Corps.
1: Both of them? Yes,
0: my mother was also... Your mother was on the
1: front lines. Yeah,
0: well, <laughs> that was after she got out and was trying to raise...
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> me and my siblings.
0: <laughs> but uh, so, <laughs> so they would... Uh, both my parents would have, uh, I think, been very interested in your book and um, especially the parts that have to do with the Marines. Uh, there's a section in the book where you talk about, um, well... You're always talking about diarrhea in all your books pretty much or or other bodily functions. You know functions. that's not
1: true. Well, <laughs> the diarrhea has never had its moment in the spotlight. I had a whole chapter on constipation in Gulp.
0: And of course in and
1: Diarrhea is like, "Hey, You give a whole chapter to constipation. What about me?
0: That's right. What am I? What am I, chopped liver? liver? (laughs) (laughs) Chopped liver? Kind of, sort of. And in Packing for Mars, you talk about going to the bathroom in space. Mm -hmm. So here it's time to talk about diarrhea. And there's a very telling anecdote about the fact that um, the Navy gets baby wipes and the Marines have to – Cut off their T-shirt,
1: <laughs> exactly. I'm sitting in this. I'm sitting in the DFAC, the dining facility at, at Camp Lemonnier, with this diarrhea researcher, and and this is in Africa. This is Djibouti. Diarrhea researcher is there, and we are sitting at at breakfast, and and he's uh, having conversations over meals, usually with people about diarrhea. And this, there was, yeah, a marine sergeant, and the topic came around to uh, the fact that. In fact, there is a combat ration toilet paper. It's like a, it looks like a napkin. They're compressed. It's uh-huh. actually a fair amount of toilet paper, but not if you have diarrhea. Right. So yeah, the Marine Corps, the, the Navy guys like, well, we used to pack baby wipes. <laughs> and the Marine goes, ah, we would just tear off a piece of our t-shirt.
0: <laughs> and that's, and that pretty much sums it up. But, um, why are we talking about diarrhea
1: at specifically at Camp Lemonnier? Uh, because that is a, there's a lot of, uh, it's, it's near Somalia, Yemen, it's, it's a lot of counterinsurgency stuff. So there's a lot of special operations guys going in and out of there on their secret high-risk missions. And those tend to take place off the big bases where there's not clean water or refrigerated food. And these guys get diarrhea at twice the rate of everybody else. And the everybody else rate is pretty high, 77%. Of the, um, folks in Iraq, I think it was 2003 to 4, 77% had diarrhea. 40% of them bad enough to get medical treatment. So, yeah, I mean, soldiers are kind of like hardcore backpackers. You know, yeah. they're out there where you don't, you don't have all the nice amenities of home. And, and 32%. Yes, 32%. Thank you. Yeah, I forgot that. Were in a situation where they couldn't get to a toilet in time. And you can imagine if you're there to you know take out Osama bin Laden you know that's and you've got to go hey hold up I got to yeah, no so so it was this you know diarrhea is a, it's a it's a silly topic but um it's not silly if it hits you and you're in kind of a um pretty crit- you're on a critical mission so my critical mission was to find special operations guys who would be uh, would have a conversation about this sort of odd topic, uh, and these guys are off in their own. They're in the restricted zone. They only come out at mealtime to the rest of the base because they don't have their own dining facility. So that put me in the position of having to approach, like, big scary special operations guys to have a conversation over dinner about diarrhea, which was a kind of a strange reporting challenge.
0: And this fellow that you approached and wound up talking to you about it uh, admitted that he had... Yeah, they just let fly in the midst yeah, was, of a mission. It
1: was, uh, he, you know, he was um, first of all he I mean, we, the public affairs guy. I'm like, it was named Seamus. He was the this very nice young guy. And I'm like, you've got to come, you have to come with me. You've got to introduce me. So we, you know, we crossed the dining facility like sort of nervous fifth graders at this a guy's dance. Is he sitting by himself? He's like the mm-hmm. big, right. virile, omnipotent, beard-shaved head, just like. Central casting for special operations.
0: And the beard lets you know that it's special. That's how too. you
1: That's how you know. Like you can pick them out. They're the only guys who have beards because they have to fit in with the local population where they're going and be respected. And, you know, they got to look like men look in that culture. So they are – and they're special. They get to do a thing. Yeah. They get – they got to – grow a beard if they want to grow beards. beard so, so a lot of them have you're, beards
0: you're approaching jesse ventura basically
1: <laughs> yeah exactly so we, we we like approach the table and he, he looks at us grabs his tray and says i'm done and Seamus goes, oh, excuse me, do you mind if I ask you, what line of work are you in? <laughs> what line, <laughs> line of, of work are, work are you, you in? Win? And he goes, I'm leaving. And so I dive in. I'm like, oh, hi, I'm Mary Roach. I'm doing this. And, uh, you know, I wanted to talk to you. It's going to seem like a really silly topic, but I wanted to have a conversation about diarrhea. And he goes, it's not silly. You can sit down. And he, and he couldn't really give me the details of the mission, obviously. You know, we kept – Seamus goes, so, so set the scene. There I was. And he said, I can't do that for you. It's classified, obviously. But he said, yeah, I've, I don't know what you guys want from me. I've soiled my pants in Iraq. I've soiled my pants in Afghanistan. There's no, there's no alternative. You know, you're not, there's nothing you can do. You just go. And, and Seamus is like, but then what do you do? Do you just go ahead and do what you've come there to do? And he said, it's kind of a life or death situation. So yeah, you've just, that's what you do. You know, you, you're, you're not, you know concerned and that's it becomes a fairly minor concern
0: right it's not like you were walking down fifth avenue and you had an accident and it's oh it's so horribly embarrassing yeah you're in this life and death situation and that's the least of your issues exactly
1: exactly yeah so they were looking uh, they being the researcher and namru 3 which is the navy (laughs) medical unit
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's the the official name it's the
1: official Mm -hmm. yeah They were. They're looking into a faster treatment regimen and single dose that would knock it out of you faster. Also, hopefully, less likely to create a situation where you have resistant strains developing. So that's what that's what he was there doing, testing. And and
0: of course, diarrhea is a huge medical problem. Once you get outside the first world, too, and people, you know, we're used to it as a joke, and it's a Pepto Bismol commercial. But out Maybe. there in the real world, it's uh, one of the major killers on the planet, two especially kids. Point,
1: yeah, two point two million deaths a year, particularly in kids. Um, there's one particularly nasty strain of E. coli, enterotoxigenic E. coli, ETEC, which the Navy is looking working with the Gates Foundation to co- to create a vaccine. Half a million deaths a year. It's not a joke, mm-hmm. and um, the, the Navy has always been pretty—I uh, mean, some of the stuff that they've come up with over the years is—it's it, impressive. You know, the the um, there was a Captain Robert Phillips. He's the guy who figured out if you add glucose to rehydration fluids, it improves absorption to the extent where you can drink them rather than get it hooked up to an IV. And that means someone in a village doesn't have to make their way to a clinic to, to, to get rehydrated. Uh, so uh, uh, that's a that's a huge advance yeah, for so when we, that happened, and that's and that it, that's y- y- yeah, it was great for the military, but it's it saved a tremendous amount of lives in developing countries.
0: Yeah. And when you're drinking your power drink after your workout, you probably have diarrhea to thank as the root of the research that led to that.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: So uh, one last thing about it: when when you finally uh, were taking your leave of the fellow that you approached, uh, he admitted. That he had actually been afraid of you.
1: Did, yeah, that's my, that's my favorite line in all the reporting I've ever done. He goes, I thought you guys were NCIS. You scared me. I, I scared you. Oh, never, my big scary guy with the beard. Yeah, it I would scared you.
0: never have occurred to you that you could possibly <laughs> no. scare this guy. <laughs> uh, and probably the only thing that would scare him is uh, bureaucracy. Exactly. So why did you decide to write Grunt?
1: Grunt came about... Not because I have any, uh, family in the military or, well, my dad was in actually World War I because he was born in 1894. I know. I was 60, he was 65 when I was born. Wow. So he, and he came over here on the Lusitania. He enlisted in World War One. Here's the glorious Roach military history. He got a hernia and basic training and that was it. Wow. So he never actually went over to the UK. He was, I think, I think that maybe the idea was, To get back and see his family eventually. Mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not entirely sure because he never talked about it. Um, anyway, so it wasn't a family. It wasn't a, I'm not in a, I'm not a military brat. I I don't have experience in the military or have any uh, people that I know who've been, uh, who've served, but I, um, I was reporting a story for Smithsonian on the hottest chili pepper in the world, arguably, because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of arguing about this. Um, and, uh, and
0: and which one is it, by the way? Which, the, what are the, the, the ghost arg- pepper? The ghost the, pepper.
1: Yeah, I'm forgetting the. Uh, I can't believe I don't remember the. The rival. No, the name. The the name. The what they call it in India. Anyway, the ghost. Uh, oh, it's. Okay. um but, but Jolak, but or something like uh-huh. that. It'll come to me gradually as the gears turn. Anyway, while reporting this story, in Nagaland, in India. Somebody said, oh, uh, some, somehow I heard that the military had weaponized this chili. They'd made a non-lethal weapon, kind of a tear gas, very mm-hmm. effective tear gas. So I thought, well, I need to report on that. I went over to the um, lab of the Indian Defense Ministry to talk to them about the chili pepper. And while I was there, uh, I was just sort of, they were showing me around. There was just some things going on. In particular, what caught my eye was the, the study of a leech repellent. And I, and I, and I thought, wow, I really want to report on this, but who would want, who would want this? You know, what, what would I do with this? And I thought, well, I, I don't know. Military science is a little more esoteric than one might think, Mm -hmm. a little more interesting. And because there's big money behind it, there are a tremendous number of labs and research facilities and things going on, which is kind of what I, I like to play around in. So that's how it.
0: And a lot of the findings do wind up being used by civilians.
1: Well, yeah, and the and the thing that, that the the targets of the research are things that everyone deals with: uh, hearing loss from loud noise, extreme heat, heat stroke, sleep deprivation, fear. So there are things that that we can all relate to. You know, not necessarily running around with people trying to kill you, hopefully, but. Um, it seemed like there were topics that people would be curious to learn about. Well, Diarrhea.
0: Yeah. I, I'm just thinking, running around with people trying to kill you. Not since I left home and my parents were <laughs> unable to find me anymore. But, uh, you know, their marine training would kick in at the strangest times. Um There's so much in the book that is unexpected because it deals with things that we just take for granted, like hearing. Yeah. Um I was shocked that hearing is the... By amount of money spent, it's the VA's number one issue
1: with mm-hmm. with veterans. Yeah, apparently. Yeah, hearing loss and tinnitus. And tinnitus, there isn't even anything you can do. I don't know why they – the. I don't know what they're spending the money on. for. I think it's just a category on some form,
0: mm-hmm. hearing
1: loss and tinnitus. Uh, but yeah, a billion dollars a year. So um, yeah, I, I wasn't really ex- – Expecting that either. I mean, it makes a certain amount of sense. What it was interesting that it's not—it's not, it's not uh, bombs going off and and gunshots entirely. It's also the fact that uh, you because those are just such brief exposures, you know. And with hearing loss, uh, the, the amount of time you're exposed is so important. I mean, if you're talking about um, eighty-five decibels, you've got eight hours of that exposure, and that's like loud traffic or something or a loud restaurant. Eight hours before you start to look at damage, whereas with a, an M16, one shot, you could start to have damage. Um, so it's, That's it's like 160-something. 160, 160 something. Yeah. yeah. Good deal.
0: I remember things Jeez. when I've just finished reading the book the wow. same morning I'm yeah. talking to the author. All right,
1: yeah. So something, something like a Blackhawk helicopter or a Bradley tank or armored personnel carrier, um, that's a long span of time at 120 yeah. or 105 decibels. And if you're not wearing hearing protection, what complicates the, the, this is that uh, you wear hearing protection and n- now your situational awareness is shot. You can't hear people talking. You might miss the sound of somebody's charging handle on a rifle around the corner. You, you say, and, and most people in that situation would rather lose some hearing than lose their life. So, so, you, so they don't wear the protection. When they should, and you can't really blame them. So there's a there's a system that uh, special operations guys have already, which is it's this big ear cuff that attenuates a loud noise but amplifies, say, a human voice. Very cool. It's like having bi- a bionic hearing without the little didididid de- 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 sound that went on when Jamie, what was her name, the Bionic Woman?
0: Uh, I I remember. I know the actress does commercials for mattresses. Now. <laughs> she does.
1: <laughs> I know. <laughs> Lindsay, like Lindsay, Lindsay Wagner. Wagner. She does. She's doing mattress commercials. But anyway, she had the bionic hearing. I tried on this. It was unbelievable. There's these guys across the room and I could eavesdrop on them. I kind of wanted a set for the subway. Yeah.
0: But, uh, it, it points up, you know, the kinds of challenges that we don't think about, uh, because we're not in these extremely stressful and mm-hmm. dangerous situations where Uh, things that you absolutely take for granted, like you walk down the street and you can hear traffic behind you or, uh, just conversations as you pass a restaurant. But everything becomes crucial in their, in their street operations and their, you know, a a platoon is walking down a road and you want to be able to put the earplugs in, but you can't because, as you said, then you're risking your life. Because you didn't hear somebody call out something right. to, to warn you
1: right and and there was a quote from one of the military audiologist guys He said, you know it, the military doesn't have a doesn't have a noise problem it has a quiet problem um, and you know, he's saying for most of a eight hour You're driving along somewhere and for, for most of the time, there's nothing going on. It's, it's, it's relatively quiet. Maybe the sound of the vehicle. So what are you going to make? But then if, if a bomb goes off or a firefight breaks out, you have, there's no warning. You don't have time to put on your hearing protection then. So what are you going to do? You're going to wear it for eight hours. No, you're not because you can't, it's uncomfortable. It's hot. So that's when they tend to get the hearing loss and they, they, something happens suddenly. They're not wearing hearing protection because how could they? So.
0: And that brings up another thing that you talk about in the book, the, uh, the dangers in your vehicle of an explosion from below, because so many vehicles, even civilian vehicles, you know, we have side airbags and front airbags, but a friend of mine's daughter just broke her ankle because she was in an accident and the floorboards came up and broke her ankle. Exactly. And yep. she had protection everywhere else. And you talk about that a lot in the book and how the guys in the, In the uh, vehicles are supposed to by regulation, which they ignore because it's impossible, uh, sit in this really weird Mm -hmm. position for hours, and you know nobody could do it.
1: Yeah, nobody can do that. Yeah, they 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 what they did that in these personnel carriers, it used to be the seats were bolted to the floor. So a bomb goes off, all that energy slamming into plus it was a flat chassis, so it just slams straight up, and the chassis slams into the your feet. And all of the energy gets transferred because the seats are bolted to the floor. And now they're not; they're kind of floating. They've got a suspension; uh, they've kind of got the the shock absorbers, basically, and and other things, so that that um, mitigate that energy. So, but in order for that to work, the 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 seats, all that business with the seats, you can't have your feet resting on the floor. Your feet have to be resting on the rungs of the guy the seat of the guy across from you so one soldier's got to sort of have his legs str- one's legs are straddling the other you're not going to sit like that for five six seven eight hours it's not it's not going to happen hopefully the whoever's driving would know okay this is a bad stretch here get into position um, but uh, it would be it would be better if you could have a vehicle that would deflect that energy so now they they do have they've got chassis that are shaped differently that to deflect the shaped like v or a double v so the deflects the energy out to the side so that helps a lot but the frustrating thing for these folks who are trying to make the vehicle safer is that by the time they figure that out they figure out how to build a crash test dummy for underbody you know the force coming up from below which they're doing now and the, but it's a long process involving you know cadaver trials they, uh, by the time they get, get everything worked out and they figure it out, you know, the conflict has moved on somewhere else and who knows what that army or those terrorists or whoever it is are going to throw at you. And now you have to deal with that. So you come into a conflict with all the equipment and the vehicles you had for the last conflict. And now maybe that none of them are really going to help you. And that, that's what happened. Yeah. I mean, they brought Humvees into Iraq and they just, it was bad news. They weren't, I mean, they, nobody was prepared for, roadside bombs they were prepared,
0: they were prepared for, for
1: rifle rocket. fire and there were you could plate the vehicles with i think it was MEXIS is a it's a ceramic something or other mix that anyway it's great for, the for rifle fire That's, and
0: rocket propelled grenades you talk about they were prepped for that but not for the ied's
1: not for ied's even rpgs the the uh, mexus was not helping they had to they ended up with slat armor which is kind of right. a cool low-tech just kind of looked like subway you know like the sidewalk grating that they would put around the vehicle and just like fencing it looked like livestock fencing but it was it the slats were just wide enough to catch the nose of an rpg and sort of stifle it so they'd come back with these rpgs sticking out of it but then the you know then, then roadside bombs came along and got bigger and bigger and then they started burying them in the roadway and they had to come up with something else. And, and so, and, and things move slowly in science and, and particularly in military science because it's a, it's a big bureaucracy. It's a big lumbering thing. And so, um, insurgents change quickly. You know, the, 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 the scenery changes. The, the threat changes. So how do you keep up with that?
0: Yeah. It's like fighting bacterial infections. The bacteria can evolve. Much yeah. faster than the host. Exactly. Um, you in the book you referred. I forget how you described when the vehicle would come back to camp with all the, uh,
1: oh the RPGs sticking oh. in it. What, what, how did you put it? I think I compared it to a hedgehog.
0: Right, that's what it was. <laughs>
1: These things sticking <laughs> out, or or like a, now there's this. I don't know if it's Renaissance or whatever. Have you ever seen those? Wound Man, those drawings from medieval or renaissance times where it's like it's a naked guy and he's got every kind of sword, hatchet, knife, everything sort of sticking, (laughs) sticking Uh out of him. I think it kind of reminded me of that. Something like
0: that. Um, And another thing that we take for granted is going to sleep. Yeah. And on a submarine, people might not know, um, you probably don't even have your own place to sleep on a submarine you're going to share that place. I don't mean share at the same time, but where you're sleeping uh, from midnight to eight, somebody else is sleeping from eight to four and somebody else is sleeping from four to midnight. There's no, I mean, people on the space shuttle might have more personal space than people on submarines.
1: Right. It's called hot bunking. It depends on the sub and the size of the crew. Um, Sometimes some of them will have to be doing that. Probably the, the lower ranking ones. Um, And, and, and that, Sucks for several reasons. Uh, it, it's uh, you have no pri. I mean, you, got, you got no space to call your own on a submarine. I mean, it, and it can be a very small space as long as it's your space. So psychologically, that's kind of that's kind of unpleasant. I was on a larger sub. I was on a, a ballistic missile submarine where everyone <clears> they <throat> didn't have necessarily have a bunk. Some of them were bunked out between the Trident missile silos, which is a strange uh, place. Oddly, the best most restful place to be because it's quiet. There's not a lot of hustle and bustle as long as the missiles aren't being launched, in which case you won't get a good night's sleep anyway, anyway, anywhere on the planet.
0: You have a picture of a fellow getting into the bunk between the, the missiles in the book
1: yeah that yeah between the some torpedoes yeah torpedoes, okay. yeah yeah they they've done that that they, they will throw a bedpan anywhere not, but not bedpan it's a, it's called a bunk pan not a bedpan it's a just a sort of a pallet to sleep on and, and anywhere that you any space you can claim you know that'll that'll be your little your bedroom there
0: yeah but not your bathroom we'll just make We'll be clear. No. When you said bedpan. It, yeah, no, it, no, no, no. But bunk, I think it's bunk that. pan,
1: yeah. they call it. Just a, just a pla- something to put a mattress down on. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: we had a close call when I was on, uh, when every time the, the sub would surface, it's a, it's because you can't, you can't see directly overhead. You're sort of s- scanning with the periscope around and around and, you have no lights, and you're not emitting so- sonar. You're just—it's passive sonar because the whole idea with a, you know, ballistic missile submarine is n- to be stealthy, so no, have nobody know where you are. Because this is a chunk of the U.S. nuclear arsenal, and the whole idea is to keep it in a place where nobody knows where it is, except the handful of people at the Pentagon who know where it is. So you're 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 traveling blind, and you're surfacing. uh You got to make sure you're not surfacing directly into another vessel, and that's happened. uh, Yeah, there was a case where a a submarine, U.S. submarine, came up under a Japanese fishery training vessel with high school kids who were training, and there were lives lost. And it was, uh, yeah, the Myru, I think it was called. Anyway, it was it was awful.
0: That was not that long ago. No,
1: no, it was not that long ago. No, no,
0: within 10 years, maybe.
1: Yeah, Uh, yeah. So it's this stressful. We were we were surfacing in a commercial shipping lane, so there there are a lot of uh, a lot of vessels around, and and if they happen to have their engines low or off, and you don't, you know, it's it's not getting picked up on the sonar. You know, you you can't you can't you can't see them until you're right under them, and and that's a you know a submarine is a great big thing. You can't swerve or stop slowly. It's like an eighteen wheeler on a freeway. You can't just sort of slam on the brakes and hope to stop in time. So. Um yeah the you something could be a mile off and they'll call it a close call. Yeah.
0: Yeah, cuz it's difficult to maneuver and and <laughs> yeah. stop when right. you're in the water and right. you're you're a big vehicle. But what was what was your close call?
1: Uh it was it was some uh, somebody we were surfacing and again it was like a mile or two but uh-huh. it was it, it didn't seem to me like a close yeah. call but it was a surprise. People hadn't they didn't have it. they weren't tracking it normally when you're surfacing you've got all these data points of, of, uh, vessels that you're following and you, you think that it, and you're having to sort of calculate, there's a computer that's calculating how far off, but it's not that accurate. Yeah. And it was a lot closer than anybody anticipated. So, uh, I mean, we were, we were fine. We weren't, it wasn't, it wasn't as though you could even, you could see them even when we surfaced, but it took everyone by surprise.
0: Sure. I mean, it's a close call, like airplanes can have a close call exactly. where they miss each other by miles, right. but they're moving so fast that if yeah. yeah it's it's actually just a few seconds of yeah or less um i'm sure that there are generals and admirals who make excellent decisions we don't talk about them that much in the book you talk about some uh some questionable calls by people who don't seem to be on site for example the uh the current working uniform color in the navy
1: oh yeah, that the I noticed when I was in Djibouti with this commander, then now captain in the navy. Um, navy folks were day to day wearing a uniform with camouflage print, but blue. And I, I said, so maybe I'm missing something here. But what would you be hide? What what would you be blending in with? And he's like, he looks down at his pant leg. He's like. Yeah. That's so if you fall overboard no one will see you. And it's, it turns out it was just camo became so popular not just in the military but in in, in civilian fashion, and in, in civilian fashion just camo was cool. It's it was everywhere and it, it every every conceivable item that you might buy, you can buy it in camo print and the navy's like, "Hey, we want camo too." <laughs> and so the day the daily working uniform is that kind of baggy pants and top in a blue, in a blue camo print. It's kind of funny.
0: And then there was the story about the uh, the beret for the army guys.
1: The beret, yeah, the beret was the uh, cover, as they say, the yes. cat, the the hat, the headwear for the basic uh, army combat uniform. Uh, a black wool beret, which is hot, heavy. Um, not easy to stuff in a pants leg pocket. Doesn't have a visor to shield you from the sun. There's a lot of reasons to really not want to wear a beret. But somebody in the higher echelons really dug the look. Yeah. And it was like yeah, that's we're going to go with the black beret, the wool beret.
0: But that has changed. Back that has changed. Took you
1: ch- about ten years. Yeah. Uh, now the uh, patrol cap, which is a lightweight cotton visored cap that you can stuff in your pocket, that's back, and everybody's. Or most people
0: Basically, are it's relieved. Like a, it's a baseball hat.
1: It's a baseball hat, but yeah. very lightweight. Right. Yeah. It's scrunchable. Yeah.
0: yeah. So uh, you you never know who's going to make decisions based on oh I think it just looks cool and really affect people in a uh, in right. a, in a negative way. Um, there are a couple of places in the book where as you know n- you're not military and you you would say things that uh, people would gently point out that you were incorrect for example you were in a uh uh, maybe it was a personnel vehicle and you said well at least you still have cup holders
1: (laughs) yeah yeah i truly believe them to be cup uh cup holders and the woman i was with said mary those are rifle holders yeah because they were were talking about how because a, a, a personnel carrier It's really stripped down because if they're going to add weight, it's got to be protective. It's got to be shielding or, you know, that thick ballistic glass. So they're always under pressure to strip out amenities. And it's a very bare bones vehicle. And I was like, oh, but you still have cup holders. That's so nice. (laughs) No. No. No, no, those
0: are for rifles. And uh, when you and we're not talking politics, we're not talking about whether or not uh, these people should have been deployed to a particular place. But when you're around these folks, um, you know, and I'm just speaking for myself now, they're really impressive. You just, I mean, yes. you just talk yeah. about their physicality sometimes, these Marines who really look like superheroes, but also just the dedication and commitment of these people.
1: And physically, the day-to-day, not just you know, set aside that someone's shooting at you or you may step on a large explosive device at any given moment. Setting all that aside, walking around, wearing body armor, carrying the weight that they're carrying. I mean, that's just like a total of 100 pounds plus. It's hot. It may be 100-some degrees and you're doing physical exercise. I was at uh, the Consortium for Health and Military Performance was doing a heat stroke, heat injury study and they have this thing called the cook box where they simulate situations. And, and I was in there with these two Army Rangers who are unbelievably fit individuals. And we're on, it's 100 degrees Fahrenheit, the treadmill is at an incline. And um, at a certain point, the researcher had me put on a pack. And I was, it was only 30 pounds in that pack, and I lasted seven minutes. It was pathetic. And these guys are like, we're going to go do a real workout later. We're going to do CrossFit. We're going to get, so we're going to, after we get something to eat, we're going to go do a real workout. unbelievable. Uh, I mean, really nice about it. Not, not denigrating me. You know, they're like, look, you know, the first time I put on a rucksack, I hated my life. You're not, you don't come out of the womb wearing a rucksack and you get used to it. And I can't imagine getting used to that or the heat or, the dirt or I it just it's a really, really hard life, and I mean, I just remember the first time picking up body armor. this is something you're you're wearing this is an outfit it's not a it's not workout equipment, it's your outfit, and yeah. that thing is so heavy I can barely lift it
0: so um, are you already at work on your next book?
1: No, no, I don't know, you know the human body is only so much terrain I can mine
0: that's the through line, isn't it for all your books it has been yeah, it
1: has been so i no I don't know what I'm I don't know what I'm doing next
0: is that um exhilarating frightening nothing
1: it's fine, it's, yeah, fine. <laughs> it's fine it's just fine
0: that's great um the the book deals with some heavy subjects but it it's still fun and funny at places not funny you know in a snide way that, that no. at the expense of any of these people just funny in terms of the strangeness of some of the things we do and yeah. and some of the outcomes that we run into.
1: And some of the, historical, the cha- historical chapters. Yeah, the OSS and their efforts to create the most vile smell imaginable.
0: Right, exactly. That
1: uh, I love. And, the, and that work, Malodorant Non-Lethal Weapons, goes on today at Monell Chemical Senses Center. So that was... That was, that was a fun chapter. So yeah, I mean, sometimes the historical stuff is where there's a little more latitude for humor or, or, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm the butt of a lot of my jokes because wow. I am such a pogue is the military term for just a clueless outsider. And I'm trying to fit in and not fitting in. So yeah.
0: Yeah. That reminds me. There was an episode of 30 Rock where, um, Alec Baldwin went to work for the government briefly and runs into this plan to make a, uh, a bomb that would go off and put out pheromones so that all the guys would turn gay and it turned out in your book that's they were really working on something like that
1: It was a non-lethal weapon brainstorming session at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and this was in the 70s I want to say or maybe not maybe it was early 90s no it was early 90s and yeah, I found the guy and he, he he mostly does bird strike. He looks at like how to make a jet canopy withstand, uh, you know, a turkey vulture hitting it or, a, a, you know, whatever, whatever the bird is. But he got invited to this, uh, because he likes to brainstorm. He got invited to this brainstorming panel. And one of the things that was in that document that all the names are redacted from, uh, one of the things that's in there was, uh, was a, to find a chemical compound that would create amorous feelings. And I interpreted it, I was like, Oh, you mean so that it would create brotherly love and fondness for the enemy? He goes, No, no, it, it's like, to, it's to, to sap morale because you're always afraid Charlie's going to come in your foxhole and <laughs> put the moves on you. Uh, so, so yeah, no, I could find no evidence that any money had been spent uh-huh. on this. It's a, it's a brainstorm. And there's, you know, that document also includes somehow directing bees to attack the enemy small rodents can we direct them to infest the enemies you know it was just it's a brainstorming session right. so anything goes, anything goes yeah. and that fell into uh the hands of mark abramson Ig Nobel awards i think uh he i think actually
0: mark abrams mark abrams right. thank
1: you yeah mark abrams uh i think that uh they gave they gave they gave it well not to the guy that it is but to some but to someone else that he is superior Uh um but but enough time had gone by where um malcolm was willing to to own up to the idea it's like yeah okay that was me
0: amazing amazing stuff grunt the curious science of humans at war mary roach always great to talk to you thanks thanks That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can follow our coverage of the science of the Olympics. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.